you were here last week, you know that we started talking about evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And this is the theme that we're going to have in January when we do our mini-conference, our Faith Based on Evidence mini-conference. If you remember, the past two years we've had themes. And we first had evidence from astronomy, and then we had evidence from uh, biology, and now this year is historical evidence. It's evidence for the resurrection, or next year actually, January the 2017. So anyway, I started talking about the case for the resurrection of Jesus last week, and it's kind of long thing, so I cut it in half, but what I'm going to do is briefly go through what we talked about last week, just very briefly, and just to jog your memories. I have some notes up here when I get through, if you want to pick up some notes. I've got a few notes from last week and this week, and then also the notes from the uh, Origin of the Universe, which was the week before that. So let's talk about what we did last week. Um, there's a book out called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus that I highly recommend. And if you want to know more about this, it's a great book to get um, by Habermas and Lacona. And Lacona is one of the guys who's going to come speak here in January. So he's written this book and he's written another big, bigger book, you know, on the evidence for the resurrection. There's been like thousands of books written on evidence for the resurrection. So it's, it's, it's not something that there's no stuff out there on. <laughs> there's a lot of uh, information on it. Central to the claim that Jesus is the only way to heaven is his resurrection. Now, we don't usually think about the resurrection being a historical fact. We think about the resurrection as something that we celebrate at Easter, but we need to focus on the fact that this is something that really happened. It's a historical fact. Jesus really did. He, not only was he crucified, but he rose from the dead. So... Um, when his critics asked him for a sign, he said he would give them one. It would be his resurrection. This is how we know he is who he says he is. He is God, and he, did, he proved it by his resurrection. And this historical test is unique to Christianity. You won't find another um, religion out there that even provides a test like this. And you can say, okay, if, if this, this box is checked, then it has to be a true religion. Christianity is the only one that provides this kind of historical test. So how do we go from thinking we believe it to be true, we believe the resurrection is true, to rational people know the resurrection is true based on the evidence. This is where we're going from. Uh, going from mere belief to actual knowledge that it's true based on the evidence. Is this, is this how we get this across to other people? Well, how we do it is through uh, evidence that's agreed on by critical scholars. We talked about the Jesus Seminar last, year, last week, the people who are really trying to disprove the Bible, and they vote on whether it's true that Jesus said this or that. And it sounds like they're a great Jesus Seminar, but they're actually they're trying to disprove it. And anyway, the critical scholars actually agree on the things that we're talking about tonight and last night. And so this is kind of a cut to the chase thing. It's like you don't have to go and explain why, how you know these things are true. You just explain that the critical scholars agree on these things. So it's sort of a cut to the chase. And we talked about five historical principles that we use to support these historical claims. And I won't go through all of them because we're a little bit short on time. Um, and what we're talking about is the minimal facts approach, the five minimal facts. These minimal facts we're talking about last week and this week consider only the data 
that are so strongly attested historically that they are granted by nearly every scholar who studies this. Now that means not only the, the scholars who are Christians and the New Testament scholars who are Christians, but the New Testament scholars who are critical scholars who don't necessarily believe that it's true. But they will believe that these particular things are true. The first one, did anybody go home and try to remember these five things? Because I was hoping that y'all would come in and somebody would volunteer to rattle them off. Do I have any volunteers? I don't see anybody volunteering, so we'll just go through them. All right, the first one is that Jesus died by crucifixion. Um, these critical scholars are way past the fact that it was Jesus a real person to he actually did die by crucifixion. So they don't have to go and say, well, prove that he actually lived. Um, the second one is that his disciples believed that he rose and appeared to them. So they actually believed what they were saying. And this is very different from what happened in September 2001 where you had the uh, Muslim guys who got on the plane and they obviously believed in what they were doing but the difference here is they believed in something that somebody had told them was true this is the disciples believing in something they were in a position to actually know whether it was true or not because remember they were testifying that they saw they were eyewitnesses to jesus being alive uh, after the resurrection eating with him talking with him even touching him so this is, this is the difference. So they, the Jesus disciples believed that he rose and appeared to them, and this is what they were testifying to, that it was, it was actually something that they knew. So that's number two. Number three is Saul or Paul, his change. If you remember the story of Paul, he was on the road to Damascus. Before that, he was uh, a persecutor of Christians. He was out to get them. He was going to round them all up and, and throw them in jail. And then he was on the road to Damascus, and Jesus appeared to him. And then not long after that, he became the greatest missionary, Christian missionary probably of all time, Paul. And so what can account for that 180-degree change in Saul, Paul, but what he testifies and Luke testifies as uh, the actual appearance of Jesus to him on the road to Damascus. I'm running through these really fast. The fourth one was similar to Paul's experience, James, who was Jesus' brother, he was changed from being a skeptic. A lot of people don't think about the fact that Jesus' family didn't believe he was the Messiah uh, until after the resurrection. So James was a skeptic. Then the resurrection occurred, and he, he uh, according to testimony, uh, met the risen Jesus, and then he became the head of the church in Jerusalem. So he, similar to Paul, had a 180-degree conversion experience, turnaround, that, that speaks to his conversion. The fifth one is the empty tomb. So we talked about that last week. Um, it's, uh, the empty tomb is something that is um, not as highly tested as the other four facts, but it is by probably 75% of the critical scholars. So I'm just running through what we talked about last week. And again, if you want to get the notes, you'll have these. And if there aren't enough, I'll email them to you. Just make sure you give me your email address. Um, so tonight, we're going to use these five facts that we talked about last week, and we're going to talk about the opposing theories to the resurrection. In other words, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. How do you count for um, all the things that happened in that time period? So we're going to talk, I'm just going to run through some of this pretty quickly because we are a little bit shorter on time. Um, the opposing theories, 
There are naturalistic explanations. That includes uh, things that, uh, like the swoon theory that we're going to talk about, uh, naturalistic explanations rather than supernatural explanations because you've got one of the two. Either there's a supernatural explanation that Jesus actually rose from the dead or there's a natural explanation that accounts for these things. So we're talking about possible naturalistic explanations. Uh, legend theory, some of you may have uh, heard about that. These things assume that the story was simply that Jesus was put in the grave and then later on the legends uh, said that he rose from the grave. He didn't really, but people just kind of embellished things and made this up as time went on. So this is some of the things that they, they come up with. Um, embellishment theories where it's just, it started out as a, a little small, it's very similar to the legend theories, but it, it just got embellished as time went on. Uh, Non-historical genre theories means that the resurrection wasn't supposed to be a historical account, but it was supposed to be poetry or a what-if scenario, uh, not a historical genre, and people just kind of got mixed up and decided that they thought it was historical. So then you have also people who say that uh, there were myths in other religions that Christianity borrowed from and decided to just make this another, you know, like, like they say that there are other uh, people rising from the dead in other religions, but if you really look at these, they, they aren't really what they say they are. So, so they say that, well, the Christians just borrowed on that to have, have one of these myths themselves. Uh, and then there are fraud th theories. Now, I don't know how that really works because to commit fraud, you have to have a motive. And I heard um, Jay Warner Wallace talking not long ago about how there's no motive for the disciples uh, perpetuating a fraud of this magnitude of, or any kind of fraud. There was no motive. Why would they do it? Were they trying to get rich? No. You know, there was no sexual motive. That's, he says there are like three motives. Um, I'm trying to think of the other one. But anyway, there, there was just no motive for them to be able to do this. So now what we're going to do is look at these opposing theories, just a few of them. This is only a handful of opposing theories, and just get a, a glimpse into the world of people who don't believe that the resurrection is true and how they account for things that happened that, that we say um, go along with the resurrection. So here's the first one. Um, they say that the tomb wasn't empty, that witnesses just simply went to the wrong tomb. And so they were mistaken, they went to the wrong tomb, it was an empty tomb, and they said, oh, it's Jesus' tomb, he's not there anymore. So there's an empty tomb. Well, uh, there's some problems with this. First of all, there are no sources for the wrong tomb theory from ancient uh, history. There's no, there's, all of these wrong tomb theory things are... are you know, within the past hundred years or so, you know, they're, they're modern, modern, but there are no ancient sources. Back, back then, they had no wrong tomb theory. Also, the location was known, the tomb's location, uh, if you remember in the biblical account, Joseph of Arimathea donated his tomb, and so people knew where it was. There was not any question about where it was. I mean, Jerusalem was compared to today. It's a small town, you know, compared to, you know, what we're used to. And they would have known that. People knew where the tombs were. So that, um, that was known. 
Um, also, the going to the wrong tomb does not account for the disciples' belief that they had seen the risen Jesus. So you can say, well, the, the disciples saw the risen Jesus. The wrong tomb theory has nothing to do with that. So see, that doesn't discount this. So this is how we use these five minimal facts to, uh, to take these theories and discount them, okay? Um, also, the Gospels say that the empty tomb convinced no one but John. In fact, Mary, if you remember, concluded that the gardener stole the body. So they weren't convinced by the empty tomb. But that's just one of the things that does go to support the fact that there was a resurrection. Um, Paul, if you remember, converted based on having seen the risen Jesus, not on the empty tomb. So the empty tomb wasn't important in his conversion. James also, like Paul, was convinced by an appearance of Jesus, not the empty tomb. So, you know, if they say, you know, you could even say, okay, they went to the wrong tomb, and you still have great evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. So you see how I'm building this? Um, so you can discount, if you talk to somebody and they say, well, the tomb, they just went to the wrong tomb, it was a, you know, the tomb wasn't empty, then you can come back with these other things. Well, what about the appearance to Paul, or the change in Paul, the change in James? You know, you can come up with these other things. So this is how we use these five things. Um, here's one of my favorites. Has anybody heard of the swoon theory? This is a very well-known theory. The swoon theory is where they say that Jesus wasn't really dead when they took him down from the cross and they put him in the grave in the tomb. He wasn't really dead. He was just so to the point of death that he was uh, unconscious. And so after he was lying in the coolness of the tomb for a little bit, he revived. And he was able to get up. And he was able to somehow open the tomb and walk out. And everybody said, oh, he's resurrected. And when he really wasn't dead at all. This is what the swoon theory says. However, there are some problems with this swoon theory. Um, I want to tell you real quick, too. Um, here is another book I want to recommend. Has anybody in here read the book by Lee Strobel, The Case for Christ? This is a very well-known book, and it's, it's written on a, a, a lay level. It's not a real scholarly, hard-to-read book, but it's a great book. Lee Strobel was an atheist, and he was an atheist to the point where he did not like Christians. He was a really bad guy. He was the legal affairs editor for the Chicago Tribune, and this is back in the 80s, and his wife became a Christian. So he decided that he was going to investigate uh, this cult that she had found herself in. So he went to church with her and he met some people. He decided that he was going to try to write a book that disproved the resurrection. And so he went out and uh, he investigated this by going to see 13 PhDs all across the country, PhDs who are Christian PhDs that had something to do with Jesus or the Gospels or the resurrection. And he interviewed all of these people. And after he interviewed these people, he became a Christian. He did not write that book that he was going to write. Then the way I understand it, several years later, his wife Leslie said, you've got to go back and write that book. But you need to make it the case for Christ, not the case against Christ, whatever he was going to you know, call it. So he did. He became one of the greatest Christian apologists alive today. He's, he's, he talks all over the place. But he's a former atheist, but he became convinced by the evidence. So I would really... Um, 
recommend that you read the book, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. And uh, chapter 11, let's see, it's interview number 10. He did 13 interviews, so interview number 10, chapter 11, is a guy that I actually know. His name is Alex Metherall, and he is a, a, a doctor, a radiology doctor, and he also has a Ph.D. in engineering, so he's pretty unique. I don't use that word a lot. But anyway, he's chapter 11, and he interviewed him about swoon theory. He wanted to know what medical evidence that there was that the swoon theory could actually be true given the knowledge that we have of what happened to Jesus, what happened during the crucifixion. And Alex Metherall, who I actually asked Alex, I met him, and I asked him, I said, you know, was Lee Strobel a Christian or was he, by the time he interviewed you, you were interview number 10, was he still an atheist? And he said, absolutely. He was an atheist when he interviewed me. There's nothing, you know, clandestine about that. He was definitely an atheist when he interviewed me. But he, he, uh, he told him a lot of the medical evidence that says that Jesus could, there's no way he could have pushed the stone away and walked down of there given what happened to him, and given the, the gospel accounts, plus given what we know about Roman crucifixion. So uh, the swoon theory that he actually got up, walked, walked down to the tomb, uh, is highly unlikely given the nature of scourging and crucifixion, what we know about it from historical accounts. So we're to believe that Jesus pushed the heavy stone away with his pierced hands and he walked blocks on these pierced and wounded feet and they'd been stretched out. If you remember, the muscles had been stretched out when he was on the cross. How could he possibly, and probably dis disjointed, probably the, the joints were, you know, how when you, you have a joint out of place, you know, how could he possibly have done that? Uh, it also cannot account for Paul's dramatic reversal of worldviews, his 180 degree turnaround. Uh, then there's the hallucination theory. Some people say that hallucination can explain the accounts of the disciples. However, we know that hallucinations are private occurrences. They're not collective. It's highly unlikely that everybody in this room is going to have a collective hallucination, right? That's um, it, it, just not going to happen. So also, hallucinations don't account for the empty tomb. We know that the tomb was empty. Um, Hallucinations don't account for the conversion version of James, brother of Jesus, who was a skeptic. And also, we have to understand that individuals and groups, friends and foes, saw Jesus many times over 40 days. So it would have had to be not just a, a, a hallucination of a bunch of people like the 500 people he appeared to, but over 40 days there were a number of these sightings of Jesus. And so it would have had to have been an incredibly... Uh, extensive amount of hallucinations, and that doesn't happen. Again, hallucinations are private experiences. So that one fails. Um, also, science proves that people don't come back to life. So this is what, this is what um, would be one of the objections to the resurrection. They would say, science says that that can't happen. Science says that people just don't, don't come back to life, and they're right what science has shown is that a person is not going to rise from the dead through natural causes. This is not what is claimed about the resurrection. The resurrection, what's claimed is that Jesus rose from the dead uh, by God's power, not by a natural 
thing. It wasn't any kind of natural event. So this is what you would say to somebody that says, well, people don't rise from the dead. Dead men don't get up, you know. Well, they don't through natural means. But if God can do the miracle of the creation of the universe that we talked about two or three weeks ago, I think it was three weeks ago, what else can he not do? What other miracle is there that we can say this is impossible if, if the, the miracle of the creation of the universe happened, and we know it happened because we're sitting here, you know, you know how, how can we say that um, other things can't happen? Uh, and I'm going through these pretty fast. Okay, here's a good one. Jesus was an extraterrestrial alien. That's what accounts for him. This, I know, this is, I know, I know, I know, I know. Well, anyway, um, that's highly unlikely given that science, let's go to science again. They say that it's very unlikely that there are any other planets over there. If he's an extraterrestrial alien, he has to have a planet that he came from. And uh, there's a new book out by Hugh Ross called Improbable Planet that says how unlikely our planet is that, you know, in other words, you've got to have another planet very, very, very identical to Earth, similar to Earth, but identical to Earth in some other part of the, the um, universe. If, there's, if Jesus is an extraterrestrial alien, he's got to come from somewhere. And they're saying it's very, very unlikely that there is another planet anywhere that satisfies all of the criteria that we have to have life on Earth. It's just not, not likely. Um, going through this pretty fast. And some people say, well, uh, if, it was, if he really rose from the dead, wouldn't he have made a greater impact? Wouldn't everybody believe in him instead of just maybe a third of the world, you know, as it is now? We have to remember the culture in first century. They didn't have access to the ways that, that we have to record events. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have newspapers. Uh, it was a lot different back then, and it was, the information was a lot slower moving. They had word of mouth, and they had... Uh, scrolls and somebody had to actually write everything. The scribes had to actually do all that, so it took longer. At least 42 authors, nine of which are secular, mention Jesus within 150 years of his death. Uh, there are a lot of people who did write about Jesus, but um, it's not. We can't apply uh, the things that we know today in our civilization to first-century uh, Jerusalem. We can't do that. Uh, and they say this is just simply a rejection of the conclusion. They just they don't want to believe it, you know, and that's why they say that. Uh, 2,000 years of attempts by critics to account for these facts by natural causes have failed. So the they're just trying to, to come up with anything. It's kind of reaching for straws, uh, trying to say that. Um, another thing to consider is near-death experiences. Now, we, we've all heard about near-death experiences. We've thought about how they challenge these naturalistic explanations. Um, if we actually, our mind and our body are separate, then there's good reason to believe in a supernatural, in, that there is supernatural, a supernatural realm, okay? So that if we have a supernatural realm, then we have a creator God. And so... Uh, what is the evidence for this, um, near de these near-death experiences which actually show there may be a supernatural realm? Um, well, we have the reports of tunnels, lights, and that sort of thing that you'll read about in books, but that's not really good evidence because it's not testable. If I, if I were to pass out and I woke up and say, oh, I went to heaven, I saw heaven, you know, and I describe it, 
you know, you're not going to know if what I'm saying is true or not unless you go there and see it for yourself. So it's not testable. Now, we had a friend, ha- actually, who, who experienced something that I do consider testable. And he, um, he died, uh, well, he died twice. He actually really died about two years ago. But before that, he had a liver transplant a number of years ago. And while he was in the hospital, um, after this liver transplant, he wasn't doing very well. And he, um, unbeknownst to him, his brother was brought in. And he'd had, uh, I think it was a drug overdose. And he was in, in bad shape in another part of the same floor of the hospital, but in the hospital. But, but, and they said, don't tell him about your, the brother because we don't want him to know anything about this. It'll, it might hurt his recovery. So nobody told him anything about the brother. So when he was, he flatlined. And when he came back to, he said, what about the brother? I can't remember his name. And his eyes are bugged out and he's got these things on his legs. And they're like, how did you know that? You know, we didn't tell you anything about that. So to me, that's more credible evidence because it says that his, his mind and his body for a short time were separate and, and that he actually was able to gain knowledge of something that he wasn't supposed to know about. So that's the kind of evidence that I like to hear about and that shows that um, there is a supernatural realm that we can count on. Uh, I know I'm going through this real fast. There are actually 12 known historical facts that give evidence to the resurrection. If you get one of these handouts that's on there, um, the fact that Jesus died by crucifixion, that's, and our, and our five, which one is that? That's number one, okay? Don't, just shout it out if you know the, the, the number. But we're not, all of these don't have numbers, though, because these are 12 historical facts. Jesus was also, was buried. There's no, um, there's, those are known facts by historians. Now, when I say you go, okay, well, of course he was buried. A lot of the uh, crucified victims were not buried. Most of them were not buried. I think it was a, a real big exception to the rule that Jesus actually was buried in a tomb. They would throw them out into a ditch where the dogs would eat them and the animals would eat them. You know, that's what I understand. And if you saw the movie Risen, that was in the movie Risen. They, had, they went looking through, you know, bones in a ditch. Um, or through bodies in a ditch for Jesus. So the fact that he was buried is a, uh, a known historical fact. His death caused the disciples to despair and lose hope, believing his life had ended. That's a historical fact. Uh, if you remember, uh, Jesus' death, they, they, before the resurrection, they were in hiding. They were like, oh no, everything's over. This thing, that, this event we thought was going to happen, this takeover, it's not, not going to happen, and we're, we're despairing. Jesus' tomb was found to be empty just a few days later. So the tomb was empty. That's a historical fact. Um, The disciples had experiences they actually believed to be literal appearances. That's our number two in our five uh, minimal facts. I see you yawning. I was up until almost 3 a.m. this morning, too. And I know several of you were. (laughs) So I understand. The disciples were transformed from doubters, afraid to identify with Jesus. Remember, they were in hiding to bold proclaimers of his death and resurrection. Now, what can account for that if it wasn't what they said? They actually saw him alive, experienced uh, eating with him, talking with him, touching him. Uh, This message of Jesus' resurrection was central to the preaching of the early church. In other words, it didn't have time to become embellished or become mythological 
it was we know that this message was central within two or three years of the resurrection we know that this message was being talked about in the early church within two or three years of Jesus' resurrection. So this is not enough time for embellishment to have occurred, for things to have gotten, uh, you know, fictionalized. Um, This message about the resurrection was especially proclaimed in Jerusalem where Jesus died and was buried only a short time before. Why is that important? Because it was, their people were still there to say they could have said it was not true. You know, what are you talking about? You know, it's not true. You know, nobody did that because it, they knew it was true. So the people were there to say it was true. As a result of the preaching of the disciples, the church was born and it grew. Um, Sunday, this is important too, became the primary day of worship, especially powerful considering the early believers were all Jewish. They worshiped on Saturday. They didn't worship on Sunday. So the fact that we worship on Sunday is an important transition and that testifies to the fact that this is a true, uh, true event. Uh, James, uh, this is number one, two, three, four. Yes, Paul is three. James is four. James, four, who was a skeptic, was converted to faith when he also saw what he believed to be the resurrected Jesus. So a few years later, Paul, who was number three in our list, likewise was converted by what he believed to be an appearance of the resurrected Jesus. So are y'all getting a feel? I don't expect you to go out and be scholars uh, on this, but I want you to have a feel for the evidence, a feel for the idea that we don't just take somebody's word for it. Uh, There is really good, credible evidence, historical evidence, that this is a true event. It actually happened, and it's it's a, a, a number of arguments. 